Mark chapter 9 is where we're at today. When we started uh, chapter 9 last week, and uh, there's a lot going on in this chapter, and it's a, it's a tough chapter was for me to like find a place to break it, because it, it all kind of flows together, so hopefully we don't lose the context by uh, taking it into two chunks. Last week, Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus up to the mountaintop, uh, where Jesus was transfigured before them, and uh, as we talked about last week, that's a lot more than just that he got shiny or that he... Would, that he glowed, it means that his true nature, his, his, as much as possible, was coming through, and his human nature was being subdued, that it was a transformation, a change of his form, uh, not just the way he looked. And also Moses and Elijah show, representing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and we're told that they spoke with Jesus about his death in Jerusalem that would soon take place. All of this is an, an amazing picture that Jesus is about to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill everything that has taken place, and, and to close out, complete the old covenant in order to bring about the new covenant. Uh, as we talked about last week, the disciples, they only saw the very surface. And I think that's as much as they could handle, right? I, I think even if we had been there, there would have been only so much that we could take. Um, and, and so to them, they, they just kind of see, well, hey, Moses and Elijah were just there. And does that mean your kingdom is about to be established? And they don't understand the deeper meaning of it all. Uh, and very often that's still the case with us. You know, the Lord is answering prayer, or maybe he's not. Maybe he's, he's telling us to wait on things, or maybe uh, certain things are taking place in our lives, and we see him, we're like, oh, wow, that's great. But again, that's just the surface. You know, he's working in a much deeper way, in a much larger way in our lives than we realize. Now, the second half of the chapter, they leave the mountaintop, this amazing experience and they come back down to the valley to a scene that is uh, absolute chaos. And, and we're going to see that I think that there's a natural progression that takes place here that a lot of times we misunderstand. And a lot of times we even find, find ourselves fighting against. Uh, but when we realize that it's part of our calling, it's part of this life that we're in, we can change our perspective on how we go from the mountaintop to the valley. And uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on here too. So... Uh, let's pray, and we will get into it. God, again, we just uh, have come here to know you better. Lord, not to have a social group, not to just be a part of a community, but Lord, we, we're here for you. We want to know you, and we want you to speak your word into our lives and change us. Give us your priorities. Show us how to draw nearer to you and live a life that glorifies you more and is an honest representation of your love. And uh, we just give you this day, we give you this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 14, chapter 9, it says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes disputing with them. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one from the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who is mute, who has a mute spirit. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him, to, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. And so I spoke to your disciples and they, that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? And how long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell onto the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he asked his father, how long has, he, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and often has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into a house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now again, there's a scene, you go from one extreme to the, the other, right? You've got Jesus with the disciples on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah. God the Father speaks from the glory, the cloud of glory. All of this takes place, and they go from there down the mountain, back to where the people are, and it's just chaos. The, the disciples are arguing with the scribes, and there's just all these people and, and everything going on. And, and the fact that the scribes are arguing with the disciples, again, it, it's a small little thing, but it shows that they are just there to cause trouble. That they're not there for any other reason. They've taken advantage of this situation to start a dispute with the disciples. And... Uh, you know, I, again, I think they're an example that reminds us how little the heart of man has changed. That even, you know, today, well, in this case, here's this poor father with his son in this condition. It's heartbreaking when you really think about their state. And, and the scribes come in when the disciples can't cast the demon out. They take advantage of that situation. They don't care about the kid. They don't care about the father. They don't care about anything else. They've just used this situation to now promote their agenda, to come against Jesus, to come against the disciples. And it's the same thing, especially in politics, but I think we see in a lot of ways. They find some poor, wretched soul that they can use as their propped-up example, but they don't care anything about that person, right? It's just promoting their agenda. And as soon as they're done with that person discard them, and on with the next. It's the same thing that the scribes are doing here. And uh, I love the fact that Jesus specifically confronts them. And again, it seems pretty mild from the way we read it. But all this is going on, yet Jesus goes right to the scribes, and he says that he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And it's, it's like this, was this unwritten code, that a rabbi... And those that he is teaching, nobody else is allowed to come in 
and start questioning his students, right? And so Jesus is really saying, who are you guys to question my students about anything, much less dispute with them about anything? It's, it's, it's really like drawing a line for the scribes, even though they're the religious leaders, even though they're the ones. Still, Jesus is in the situation of being the rabbi over these men, and they've stepped out of line by disputing with them. So Jesus calls them on that. Um, and I think overall, kind of the big picture of what's going on here, uh, it's a bit of a side note to, to the scene that we just read about, but I think it, we need to see how it fits in. Again, from the mountaintop to the valley, that very often, I know for years, man, I, all I wanted was the mountaintop experiences, Right? And there's plenty of books out there and plenty of formulas about how to, how to live that life. It's like always on the mountaintop. And, and anytime you're not on the mountaintop, well, you're out of God's will. Or I don't believe that's true at all. In fact, while as great as those mountaintop experiences are, the valleys are where I grow. I, I, I love the rest and the peace and the joy found on the mountaintop. And it is a time of refilling and refreshing and, and super important. But I know from my spiritual walk, my own maturity, those have all happened in the valley of the shadow, right? And so along with that, what I've also kind of found in my personality is that I tend to like, well, because I like the mountaintop, I just endure the valley and hope for the next mountaintop to start soon, right? So you're just like, okay, this is going to, you know, it's the way it is and the undulation of the Christian walk and and I, even though I'm in the low time, I've just got to get through it. But I think there's something more to our calling, and this is a, a great picture of it all, is that I believe that we're supposed to take what we get on the mountaintop and purposely take it to the valley. That going from this place of peace and refreshment, instead of just finding ourselves back into the chaos of life, that we're making a choice, right? And again, I think the mountaintops are great because, you know, when we're up there, we're just like, we feel so good and so solid in our faith, ready to take on the world. And then the problem is the world shows up and we're like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not doing as well as I thought. Um, but I, I think there's something different, that we change our perspective. Again, this is part, this is just normal life. I think it's it's the normal Christian life that, Going from the mountaintop to the valley doesn't mean that we're good, doing great with the Lord here and we're doing poorly here. I don't think that has anything to do with it. But I think we can change our mindset going, okay, I'm on the mountaintop now. I'm going to love it. I'm going to take it in as much as I can. I want to be refreshed and ready. But I also know what's next. And I'm going to leave this place choosing to go into the valley because that's where the broken are. Have you noticed how lonely it is on the mountaintop? There's not too many people there, if anybody. It's just you and the Lord, right? It's in this great place. But we're not called to be in that place of isolation. We're called to be in a place where we're serving others. We're going to see Jesus make that very clear as we go on in the chapter. Again, I believe we're called to be ambassadors, taking what we've gotten on the mountaintop down into the valley, down to the brokenhearted, down to the, the lost, and, um, and I think the best example, even better than this picture, is Jesus himself, right? Leaving heaven itself 
in absolute perfect peace and joy and communion with the Father and all those things to come here and be one of us. I mean, this is the valley <laughs> compared to heaven. I mean, this is where the broken are, and that's where he came to find the broken. And we've got that same calling on our life. Again, sometimes I think I can be very focused on what I want and what I think is going to be best for me, and of course, that must be the mountaintop, but that's not the calling that's upon our lives. Our calling is to bring the good news to the broken and rest to the weary. Um, again, back to this picture here or this thing that's taking place with the father bringing his son to Jesus. Uh, it, again, it's heartbreaking. You think about what has this guy been through? How, just the few things he mentions. That his son has been like this from a young age. Sometimes he is thrown into the fire. Sometimes he's thrown into the water. And so this father must be like in a hypervigilant state, constantly trying to keep his son safe everywhere they go. There can't be a time that he could rest because his, this demon might try and take his son's life. And so he comes to Jesus in this broken place, desperate for help. Um, I think there's a, a big mistake that people have made with this story. I've, I've even heard people teach this, and it drives me crazy, is that they go, well, this isn't actually demon possession. This is epilepsy. But they didn't know that back then, so they just described it as demon possession. Here's some problems with that. Because... The biggest one is that if this was just a superstition of the people, then Jesus is being dishonest by playing along. Right? If Jesus is like, well, I know it's epilepsy, but I'm not going to explain it to them. So he addresses a demon that doesn't exist. That's dishonesty. Now, can it be epilepsy that's brought on by demon possession? Absolutely. Just like other things, other illnesses, other things that we see. But there's a demonic element to it. And we see that in a couple different ways. First of all, that when, in verse 20, it says, and when he saw him, meaning the demon-possessed boy, immediately the spirit convulsed him. There's an instant response to Jesus. It's not just an epileptic seizure, that the demon sees Jesus and panics, right? And again, Jesus will deal with him directly, deal with the demon directly. Uh, the other thing that's interesting here, and we see it by the fact that the disciples could not cast the demon out, is that there are degrees of authority when it comes to demons. Now, I don't like to spend a lot of time getting into it, because some people take that to such a crazy extreme, and they start worrying all about, you know, strongholds in, in areas of occupation and which demons have, you know, I don't think we need to worry about any of that. But I do think it's good for us to understand that the demonic realm is set up kind of in a military sense, that there are the lowers, there's the mediums, and there's the generals. And this demon has a great amount of authority. Now, it's nothing compared to the authority of Jesus. So there's no conflict there. Jesus isn't like, oh, here's one of the big guys. This demon has to obey Jesus. There's no question there. But the fact that the disciples couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus will say, well, yeah, it's because of the type of demon this is, basically. Uh, the Disciples weren't out of place, right? Jesus has already given them authority to cast out demons. They have done it before. So they weren't wrong to try. They weren't being arrogant. Um, but I do think it's important to note that when Matthew recounts this event, one of the things that Jesus points out to them there is that uh, it had to do with unbelief. 
And that seems kind of crazy. It's like, well, they believed they could, right? They, they'd done it before. They had enough faith to try. So what were they lacking? I think they were lacking having faith in the right place. See, it's, and we make the same mistake is that we put our faith in a formula. Oh, this has worked before. This is how we did it last time. This is how we've done it for the last 50 years. So why isn't it working now? Well, because we're not putting our faith in the one that gave us that authority. We're putting it in a formula. And I think that's a good chance that that was the case with the disciples. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting, Jesus' response to all of this. So this is all taking place, you know, the, the guy explains, hey, my son is demon-possessed, and I brought him to you, and his disciples couldn't, your disciples couldn't do anything. But Jesus' response in verse 19 is actually a little bit uh, unexpected, where he just goes, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? You know, and, and I don't think Jesus is mad in any way. I don't think this is no aggressive tone in this. Um, the way that it's worded. But I also, again, remember Jesus just came from discussing with Moses and Elijah what's coming next. That all things are about to get wrapped up. He is about to fulfill the law and the prophets, and his time on this earth is short. So I don't believe this is being directed at the Father or the Son, but I think it's the chaos of the crowd. Just like Jesus comes from this place discussing his death and how he's going to pay for all mankind to this absolute chaos. And I just think, I get the sense he's just a little weary. Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's going on here. But it doesn't keep him from uh, still delivering this young man. Verse 23, he tells the father, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And it, verse 24 is this sense of desperation every time I read it. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's the most honest prayer ever prayed. As, as, as many, again, books, formulas, ideas that are people like, here's how to have perfect faith. Here's how to have a great faith. To me, this is the most honest faith there is, right? He's got enough faith to bring his son to Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the answer, but there, he's honest about the doubt of what the outcome's going to be, afraid to hope. And, and I think we've all been in places like that where we've just carried on so long in, in some painful situation that even when the answer arrives, we're like, I hope it works, but I'm so terrified to get my hopes up. And, and I love just the honesty. I think, to me, this is, is probably the best way we could end just about any prayer. Lord, I believe in you. I know that you're the answer. Help my unbelief. Do whatever's right. Do whatever you need. But you know how weak I am, right? And, and I believe that the Lord loves that honesty. And I believe that he honors it. Uh, it doesn't mean we're always going to get what we ask for. But it does mean he's going to continue to give us what is right and best at all times. Um, and with just a word, Jesus delivers this kid, you know, he falls on the ground, everyone thinks he's dead, Jesus raises him up, and, and he's fine, um, and again, the disciples are like, we don't understand this, we've done this before, we've cast out demons before, but what was the difference here? Uh, I already mentioned the unbelief, but then, uh, 
And I also think it's interesting. They wait till no one's around, right? They get Jesus alone. They're like, okay, what was up with that? <laughs> you know, why did that not work well, the way we planned it? And, uh, and he says that this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Uh, now, while that seems like a really simple answer, I think it's one that we make a big mistake about. The, the importance of prayer and fasting, I think everybody agrees. Like, yeah, that's important stuff. That's, those are good, powerful things in our walk, prayer and fasting. But I think we misunderstand what they accomplish, right? Again, when I first got saved, and even for years after that, I saw, especially fasting being that thing that, man, when you're serious, this is how you show God how serious you are. Like, I'm going to skip two meals, God, you know? I've been praying about this thing, and I'm not going to do food for a day, and that's going to show you how serious I am, as if we need to somehow overcome God's reluctance, right? I think that's a big misunderstanding. Or that somehow... It's the magic key or the magic bullet to make things happen. That when it comes to demonic warfare or spiritual warfare, man, fasting's the, the super power-up in the video game to get them to the next level. Again, that, that misses the whole point of what's being said here. Fasting and prayer have a few very specific purposes. They both are like a dividing line between our human nature, our flesh, and the things of God. That's really what they do. They, 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 they draw the line for us, not for God, he already knows, but for us to go, okay, this is me, and Lord, that's you. And that's the beginning of, of what they accomplish in us. I think overall, you could say that both prayer and fasting reveal our need for him, right? That I have found many, many times as I begin to pray about something and I think, man, I know exactly what needs to happen here and I, I'm praying and I'm very honest, and, but as I'm praying, I start realizing, oh, wait, this is actually about my needs, my wants, my flesh, what I think should happen. And the Holy Spirit begins to reveal what he wants to do, right? And again, it, it gets me in line with him and it shows me those things that are of me. And, uh, and I believe that, that is really what Jesus is talking about here. Because if we see as prayer, if we see prayer and fasting as being the magic keys to give us extra supernatural power to deal with demonic forces or whatever, how much prayer does it require? Is it a day? How much fasting is required? Is it, is it food and water? Is it just food? Is it three days of it, or is it 30 days of it? See, that isn't what Jesus is saying. The idea isn't an event of have I prayed enough, have I fasted enough. The idea is, is a lifestyle where we're bringing our flesh into question, and we're yielding to the things of God. We're putting our flesh to death, whatever fasting that might be. Maybe it's social media for a couple days. Maybe it's, maybe it's anything in our life. It could be food. It could be whatever that you're just like, I feel like this has maybe got too much of a hold on me. I'm just going to dump it for a while because I want to make sure that I'm in tune with the Holy Spirit. And that that desire to put our flesh to death and to have a deeper walk with Jesus Christ, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, that is what makes demons tremble. 
no matter their power, no matter their authority. That is the last thing they want, is for God's people to be in tune with him, right? These only come out by prayer and fasting, and we can live a life of prayer and fasting, right? I believe that's what Jesus is pointing to. All right, verse 30. So then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. And then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst, in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. Now John answered, saying, Teacher, I saw somebody, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one can, who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is, for, is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will, not, he will by no means lose his reward. Now Jesus has told them of his death that is coming several times. But this time he gives them a detail that he's left out, that he hasn't uh, shared with them, that the Son of Man will be betrayed. So it's not just an arrest. It's not just the Romans getting upset. It's not the religious leaders somehow getting the upper hand. It is somebody that they all know that is going to betray Jesus. And, and again, this is too much for them. They can't understand it. Even when he tries to give them hope, saying, on the third day I will rise again, they just don't get it. And, and again, they, they are, think that it's symbolic. They think that it's somehow a metaphor. Um, but nobody wants to ask them about it because they'd have to admit they didn't get it. Um, now, the proof that they certainly weren't even close to getting it is that they argued as they walked about who would be the greatest. Right? Again, here's Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, speaking of his death, and what are they talking about? So which one of us is the best? I think it's me, right? That when Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom, when he is ruling the world, which one of us do you think will be on his right hand? That's really the question, right? And I'm sure each one of them, well, of course it will be me. I mean, you guys are okay, but you're not me. And they're still looking for this earthly kingdom to establish. And it, to me, I just think it's, again, I love those little glimpses of Jesus' sense of humor right? He knows what they were talking about. <laughs> and so he asked them, what are you guys arguing about? When we were on the road, you guys were arguing about something. What was that? And they're like, mm, nothing, right? 
Nobody wants to admit it because they know what they were talking about. Oh, nothing, Jesus, you know. Um, again, I think one of the great things that Jesus does is he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great, right? It would be easy to do. You guys shouldn't want greatness. You should want the least. You should want this. You should want to be the, you know, all these things. But he doesn't do that. He's like, okay, I'll, if you want to be great, I'm going to tell you how. But it's not the greatness of the world. If you want to be great in God's eyes, if you want to be great in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, this is what greatness looks like. And the kingdom of God is completely upside down. If you want to be great, if anyone desires to be first, and that's the first, the best, the biggest, the, the greatest, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. This is how God defines greatness. Jesus calls this child, brings him in, and, uh, and uses him as the example. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives me not but him who sent me. Um, and again, this is Jesus going, okay, guys, do you truly want to be great? Do you want greatness that, on an eternal level? That's not how the world works at all. The world's greatness is a flash, and it's gone. It is the movie star, the rock star, the politician, whoever, and at the very most, they've got popularity for a section of their lives. Even if it was their entire life, hearing God. And so Jesus is giving them how to be great on an eternal level. And there's actually two parts to it. First, the first key to greatness is to be the last of all. And again, it's so contrary to our nature. It's so contrary to this world, right? It means to stop striving to be first. Stop struggling to be the first in line for things. Quit being the one trying to promote yourself, to defend yourself, to prove how you're right and they're wrong and how everyone should listen to you because you've got the keys and no one else has seen. Stop. And there's something in us, that just our fallen nature, that's always just so hungry to do those very things, right? Especially when we're misunderstood. We say something, somebody takes it out of context, what do we want to do? Just run them. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. That, you know, it's completely wrong. I think there's such a great relief when we're able to just go, I know that's not what I meant. <laughs> the Lord knows that's not what I meant. And we stop striving to be the first. Instead, we choose to be the last. Not the last by default. Not the last because we were afraid to do anything else. It's that we could have strove to be more, and we've chosen to be last. The next is that we do the things and serve the people that we will never be famous for. We choose the hard jobs, the low place, and to be the servant of all. And that does mean, literally, all, but there's a focus that we miss that it means not just everybody, but it's everybody including the least and the last. So you're going to choose to be the least, and you're going to choose to serve the least. Because in some ways, it's easy to serve people who are the most, because then they owe you. It's easy to serve people on the same level as you, because then they owe you. 
And the idea is, and why Jesus chooses the child to use as the example, is that there is nothing a child can do to pay you back. The idea of serving widows and orphans is the same. They have nothing to repay you with. Anything you do for them is between you and the Lord. There will never be a repayment. You will never get famous from doing those things. You are making a choice to be the last and to serve the last. Again, this is what counts in the upside-down kingdom. This is what matters to God. This is what has eternal value. And we see that in so many different places. In heaven, the first will be last, the last will be first. The rich will be poor, or the poor will be rich. And all of understanding these things in his kingdom, and that these are eternal values that will last for all eternity to forever in the future, it changes the way we live right now. It changes what our priorities are. Again, there is a big difference between having to do the hard job, having to serve difficult people because it's thrust upon us. Well, I guess I have to do it. Big difference between that and choosing. No, I'm going to make a point to do the hard job, to serve the hard people, to take no reward. Changes the way we live, changes our priorities, changes the way we treat people. Again, the disciples still don't really know what this means. So John just kind of randomly throws out like, oh, hey, Jesus, you know, we did this great thing. We shut this guy down. He was casting out demons in your name, and we were like, hey, just knock that off, right? And first of all, I think it's cool to point out that Jesus' name has great power. Even when a non-believer uses it, it has power. And so John describes this. We saw a guy casting out demons. In other words, he was effective at what he was doing. He was using it, your name, but he doesn't follow us. So we told him to knock it off. And Jesus says something very interesting. And I find it interesting because I think it applies a lot to the, what we see in our day and age right now. In verse 40, he says, For he who is not against us is on our side. Now that sounds like either for me or against me, but it's actually the opposite. Because we hear that all the time. Oh, you're either for me or you're against me. And it's so crazy right now with all the, like, I don't know, just huge division. Just any cho- choose any th- area you want, whether it's the media or movies or, or whatever. There's just, like, this giant division. And both sides are saying, choose your side and then prove it. You're either for us or you're against us. And if you don't prove it, you're against us. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying, look, if they're not directly against us, we're going to count it like they're for us. <laughs> and, and what's nice about that is it really it, it gives this huge latitude. And it gives this huge amount to say, you know what? You don't have to agree with everything that I say. You don't have to agree with everything I believe. But if you're not trying to stop me, then I'm going to say that you're on my side. We're, we're wanting some of the same things. And, and even... I, I like the fact that Jesus goes on to say that, hey, if somebody gives you a, a glass of water in my name because you're a believer, in other words, they're not, and they're like, hey, I know you're a Christian, here, have some water, that means something to the Lord. That person's not going to lose their reward. I've known people that are like, oh, yeah, we had this, you know, this non-believer that was going to make a donation to the church, and we're like, no, you can't because you're not a believer. And I'm like, well, first you do want to know his motives, 
right? You, want, you don't want to open the door for some weird thing to take place. But it, it, honestly, if they're just going, hey, we see you doing good stuff in the community, and we want to come alongside what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not against us. They're not trying to stop us. We're going to count it like they're for us, <laughs> whether they like it or not. <laughs> and then verse 42, we're going to pick up, uh, wrapping this up, but uh, some very strong warnings that Jesus gives here uh, as we finish up this chapter. Verse 42 says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. To everyone, for everyone, will be seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will, it be, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and peace with one another. Now again, these are some very strong warnings that Jesus gives. Uh, first of all, to anyone who would try and lead someone astray. While he's using children as the example, it really means my children, any of my children. And it, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. This is a serious threat promise however you want to look at it where he says it'd be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the sea the millstone most common that were used in a household was a small little stone that would roll around inside of a bowl the one that jesus uses is a large one pulled by a mule that would have been used for an entire town and and again he's not saying that's the punishment you'll get he's saying it would be better for you if that happened you get off lucky if that's all that happened to you. So he's, he's very clearly saying, people that mess with my kids, people that mess with my children, I take that very seriously. So first warning is to those who would try and lead others astray. The second warning is for any of us when we are put in a place where we're tempted to take advantage. It may not be trying to lead someone away from the Lord, but just taking advantage of a situation for our own benefit. Um, and I love the fact that the Lord is, doesn't shy away from knowing these are the things that we're going to struggle with. And he talks about pluck your eye out, cut your hand off, cut your foot off. Now, it's not literal because the problem isn't about our eye or our hand or our foot. The problem is our heart. You could pluck your eyes out and still think lustful thoughts. You could cut your hand off and still steal with the other hand, right? It's, so it's not about the physical body. It is about the position of our heart. What Jesus is saying is when it comes to temptation, we've got to get radical with it. 
We can't do this thing like, oh, I don't want to like, cause a scene. I don't want to make somebody feel awkward. Especially, I think, a, a lot of times that's the case when it comes to relationships, right? If we have a friendship, relationship, or work situation where we're like, this, this is a place of temptation. Either I'm getting angry all the time or whatever it might be. We've got to be willing to go, I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to get radical with that. And they won't understand, or maybe they'll mock, or maybe it'll be awkward. I don't care. I'm going to get radical with it. I'm going to cut it off. Because I'm not willing to be put in a place of temptation and worry about losing that close, intimate walk with the Lord. It's that important. And we've got to be willing to get that radical when it comes to our temptation and radical with our walk with the Lord. Verse 50, just real quick, it does sound like this strange like change of direction where Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Again, it's, it's a picture of, of our walk, and there's a lot that goes into it. Salt was a very valuable thing in Jesus' day. Uh, we take it for granted because it's everywhere. But literally what Jesus is talking about is, is that if salt loses its purpose, the thing that it was created to do, how can it be made right? As a believer, if we lose our purpose, if we lose our direction, man, we become worthless. We become you know, empty, wandering the wilderness because we've lost the very thing that we were created to do. And we need to be those who are seeking the Lord. And whether that's on the mountaintop or in the valley, in those times of prayer and in fasting, the whole point is to get closer to him. And I believe that's what most of this chapter is speaking about, is that desire for closeness, that desire for depth. No matter where it's taking place, that we're wanting to get closer and closer, that we want to be those that are good ambassadors of Jesus everywhere we go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, again, once... Again, we thank you that you are so patient with us, that you continue to raise us up, you continue to encourage, and God, that you want that close relationship. This isn't somehow about us overcoming your reluctance to know us. You already want to know us. We pray that you would remove those things, that we would get serious with temptation, serious with distraction, Lord, and cut them off, that we might press in closer to you. And uh, Lord, that we would be your good ambassadors taking what we've received on the mountaintop into the valley, to the lost, to the broken, that they might see who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.